All right, well, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 8 this evening as we're continuing on in our series. I uh, originally was supposed to be doing 1 Samuel 17, which was David and Goliath. That was my favorite passage growing up, and Elias decided to steal it from me. So I get the kind of the depressing text of Israel just being Israel and, you know, being like us, disobeying as often as we do. But I forgive Elias, so love him. So we are in 1 Samuel chapter 8 this evening, and it is, I'm very grateful to be preaching it because it it was much needed for my life as far as really God just um, convicting me on certain areas of my life and my walk with Him. And it's my prayer that as we sang earlier this evening, that Christ would be magnified uh, in this text and in the preaching of God's Word. I've always uh, loved music growing up. I've loved different kinds and different types of music. Uh, I haven't been gifted in many musical abilities, but I've always loved music. And I don't really have a favorite type or genre of music. I I have some that I don't really care for, but um, I don't really have a favorite. Um, But I, I, I always like reading about musicians and kind of how they have developed a love for music and um, starting out, how maybe they discovered they, they had a, a gift in music, of whether it's an instrument or, uh, you know, singing or, or what have you. And, you know, I, I, I prefer kind of older music, but there, there are times where I'll listen to a new song or it's new to me and I think it's new and... Um, Sierra corrects me and says that song's been out for several years. And I, it happened the other day we, on our Spotify account. I heard a song I really liked. And I was like, man, did you hear this new song? She's like, that came out like four years ago. So I was like, oh, it's new to me. Anyway, so it shows, shows how uh, up-to-date I am with the current events on, in the music industry. But there is a, there is a, is a man, and he... Um, he discovered that he liked music, and his name is Marshall Mathers. You probably don't know, uh, my generation probably knows him, but they probably wouldn't know him by that name. And anyway, he, he loved music. He, he grew up um, listening to it all the time, and, and he, his main desire was he wanted to be famous, that was his goal. That was his desire. And he was going to do just about whatever it took for him to get to the top and to be uh, well-known in his craft. And so um, he, he worked tirelessly, sacrificed a lot to get to the top. And he finally did. He, he is a well-known rapper. I know we're probably not into that type of music here, but he is very gifted in, in that uh, style of music, and he, um, unfortunately, though, as a result, this this man, in his pursuit to become as famous and as big as he is today, he ended up uh, losing his wife, uh, losing his daughter, uh, developing, um, you know, a, a drug addiction, and all of these things. And so he, as as his life unfolded, and as he became more famous, 
even struggling with all of these things, he ended up writing a song about it, about his, about his journey, getting to the top and getting what he wished for. And the lyrics, the, the chorus to it is, he says, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And if you get it, then you just might not know what to do with it. I was like, that is very fitting. And um, for those of us who might know him, uh, he goes by the uh, one name Eminem. So not spelled like we would think Eminem. It's his own spin on it. But I thought those lyrics were very telling uh, because he, the whole song is about his journey and his life uh, to get where he is today and what all he lost to get there. And so those lyrics are very telling. Be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And if you get it, then you just might not know what to do with it. He didn't know what to do when he got everything that he wanted. And as we come to this text in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel finds themselves pretty much in the same exact position. They, they find themselves with a similar outlook. They are dead set on something, on getting something, on wanting something, on desiring something that they will do just about anything to get it. They don't care if they disobey God. They already have been doing it. And so they, they really don't care about that. They want what they want. They're coveting uh, what other nations have. And since they're coveting what other nations have, uh, it, it makes them very short-sighted in what God has already blessed them with and has given them and and have told them what not to do, but they're deciding to do it anyway. And so that's where we find Israel in this text. And we'll see that they ask for something. Well, they don't ask for something. They really demand something. And the thing that they demand will come back to haunt them for generations and generations to come. Starting in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we we encounter uh, Samuel, actually. In verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, or and it came about when Samuel was old, that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. So let's stop there for a second and, and just kind of discuss what's happening here. We come to Samuel, and it says he is an old, uh, an old man at this point. He has lived most of his life, and he is at the point where he's advanced in age to where he can't do what he was used to being able to do. And as a result, he appoints uh, judges who happen to be his sons. Now, before we talk about the sons, I just want to talk about Samuel real briefly. Samuel, if you look in the scriptures, is a very faithful uh, man of God, very righteous man. In fact, uh, when he was called as a, as a child, he, he did what Eli told him to do. He said, when you hear God's voice say, speak for your servant is listening. And he pretty much had that attitude his whole, his whole life being a God-fearing, righteous man. And even in the uh, book of Jeremiah, whenever God is, one, is once again um, justifiably angry at his people for disobeying him, Jeremiah writes, then the Lord in chapter 15, I'll just read it. Then the Lord said to me, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. So God is talking to Jeremiah in this text and he says, even if Moses or Samuel himself were to intercede 
on these people's behalf, I would not listen. That says a lot about Samuel, his character, his love for the Lord, his desire to talk to the Lord. And he must have been a great intercessor because the Lord wouldn't have said that to Jeremiah, to to put him right with the ranks of Moses. So this was a very faithful man, a very God-fearing, God-loving man, but he's just to the point where he can't do what what, um, he used to do. And so he appoints his two sons, and they were judging in Beersheba. Maybe the first mistake was to not put two people who are two brothers judging over Israel in the same location. That's just asking for trouble. I didn't have brothers growing up, but anybody that has had just siblings growing up in general know that's not a wise idea to put them both in charge of something in the same place over the same people, over the same nation. So that was probably the first mistake. But even really before that, we see uh, what it says about his sons. So we, we understand that Samuel's a faithful man. In fact, the previous chapter mentions he's still imploring God's people to return to him uh, because he says in 7.3, then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So we see that Samuel is still about the business of, his, of God's people returning to him. He's still imploring them to do so. But then in verse 3 in our text, in chapter 8, we see the contrast of his sons. It says, His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. So they're pretty much the polar opposite of Samuel. Now, I know this text wasn't written when uh, we get to this text here, but it says in Malachi, what are God's people supposed to do? Especially if they're in leadership like this, they're supposed to do what? Seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. They are doing the total opposite of that by turning aside after dishonest gain and taking bribes and perverting justice. They are not doing justice. They're not loving mercy, and they're certainly not walking humbly with the Lord. And so they are the polar opposite of what God wants in leadership for his people. And so God's people recognize this. They say, this is not right. We are not being led well. We're not being led like Samuel was was, uh, leading. Now, the nation of Israel already had their, their own issues. It wasn't just because of the son's disobedience. But we see in verse 4, as a result of their unfaithfulness, as a result of Samuel's two sons' disobedience and, and uh, not leading properly, verse 4 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel in Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us, to judge us like all the nations, like all the nations. So one could make a case. Now, I don't think you can really um, definitively say this, but you could kind of make a case to say, if Samuel's sons were faithful, then maybe God's people, the elders, wouldn't have gone up to Samuel and say, hey, we need a king because they were being unfaithful. We need someone who is faithful to rule us. Now, I think if they were faithful, I think at the end of the day, eventually the Israelites would have done this because they have 
a track record, just like we do, and we'll get to that later, of disobeying God and not being content with what God has given us and not um, just walking with the Lord as we should. So I don't think you can necessarily say that is why they asked for a king, but it didn't help. It didn't help, did it? That God's, uh, that Samuel's sons were dishonest, that they were faithful, that they took bribes. They were not good judges in the land of Israel. And so as a result, the elders of Israel got tired of it and they say, we need some structure. We need a man who will lead us. This goes to show that the, the power of disobedience. This goes to show the, the power of the abuse of power, of not being faithful what, with what God has given you to uh, lead, what God has given you to steward. And as a result, it impacts not just you, it impacts the people around you. This impacted a whole nation because of Samuel's son's unfaithfulness to God and his word and to lead as the Lord would have them. We see the, the effects and the power of sin. Sin, the, the consequences of sin are never just to yourself. That's what the enemy would want you to think. This just affects you, doesn't affect anybody else. But we see here, and really, it's hard to even see here, as you go along in the Old Testament, you see how this one isolated event affects generations to come because they demanded a king. So here in the passage, we see Samuel is uh, appointed as sons. The sons aren't faithful. As a result, the elders say, we need a king. We want a king. Why? <laughs> to judge us like all the nations. That that, that's very telling right there, isn't it? Because from the beginning, God said, you're not going to be like any other nation. You're my people. I will lead you. But because their focus was on the things of this world, their focus was outwardly and not focused on what the Lord wanted, they wanted to be like everyone else. And as I said at the beginning of this message, their, their, discontent, uh, their discontentment, their short, their, their sin made them short-sighted in the blessings of God. But I want us to look at real, real briefly too, Samuel's response. I think this is very uh, telling of who Samuel is. After they demand a king in verse five, it says in verse six, but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So obviously for a man who is righteous like Samuel, this would be displeasing to hear. And it's, I'm sure there's several reasons. I mean, he had been, uh, in, in leadership over the nation of Israel. He was getting older, and now his sons aren't living how they, he knows that they should be living. And so that's bothering him I'm, most definitely. And now they're saying, we want to be like everyone else. Give us a king. So all of this combined displeased Samuel. But what does it say that Samuel did in response? And Samuel prayed to the Lord. We cannot overlook that right there, can we? Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now, this is where I started getting really convicted as I was studying. We all have problems. We all have issues in our life. We all face things and, and have things come before us that disappoint us, that discourage us, that can even make us angry, and rightfully so. I think Samuel had a right to be angry over this because Israelites are coming before him and saying, we want a king. God says, you don't need a king. I am your king. So Samuel has every right to be angry, a righteous anger, but an anger nonetheless, so we all face those things. But what are our initial responses to when we face discouragement, disappointment, hardship, anger? 
it, it's, I have to be honest, a lot of times praying is not my first resort. Now, it, it, it's, it's on the list, but a lot of times it's not the first thing on the list, unfortunately. I wish I could be up here and tell you it is, but let's face it, I would be lying to you. A lot of times when we face these things, what do we do first? We bellyache, we complain, we grumble, we gossip. And, and I'm not saying that you can't vent to somebody. I'm not saying that at all. But oftentimes we say, I'm just venting, and it leads to way more, doesn't it? You know? So that's, that's where it all starts a lot of times. We, we, say, we end up praying, but it's on the last thing on the list. It's never... A lot of times it's not the first thing, but look at Samuel's character. He hears this. Think for a moment of how Samuel had to feel Israel wanting a king, Israel not wanting to obey God, blatantly following uh, idols, uh, committing idolatry. He's imploring them to turn. Now they're saying, no, you know what? We want a king. We demand a king. And his first response is, yes, he's displeased, but he prays to the Lord. What a powerful statement. That's something for us to take hold of. When we have issues in our life. The first resort, our first priority is to be prayer. Because oftentimes that might not change the circumstances, but it sure can change our attitude and outlook a lot of times. So he says, and he prayed to the Lord. But what did he pray? We see Samuel's faithfulness, but now we're going to kind of shift to the Lord's perspective. So Samuel prayed and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice, however, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. And verse 10 says, So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. So he prays to the Lord. The Lord says to him, give them what they want. That might have been a surprise for Samuel to hear. He might have been expecting God to say, you know what, stand in the gap. I'm going to provide, this is what's going to happen. They're not getting a king. And finally, God just says, give them what they want. They want a king. They've been asking for a king. They've been straying away from me for so long. Give them what they want. That had to be surprising to Samuel nonetheless. But verse, verse 7, as he says, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. What stuck out to me really was not only that, but the last part of verse seven, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God is a patient God, very patient, long-suffering. We all have experienced that in our lives. The very fact that you're sitting in here proves God's long-suffering, right? We all uh, deserve his wrath, but by his mercy and his grace, especially if you have trusted in him, he has saved you from your sins. We, we see so many evidence, so much evidence of God's long-suffering, God's love, God's patience. And he says, give them what they want and don't be discouraged. They haven't rejected you, they have rejected me. There comes a time where God, even his patience, runs thin. And 
he's a very long-suffering and patient God, but there comes a point right here in this text where he said that's what they want, that's what they're going to get. It's kind of like Romans 1, whenever uh, it's, Paul writes, God gave them over to their desires. He gave them over to a reprobate mind. He gave them over to what they wanted. This is what we see. We see this uh, part of God's character in this text. But at the end of verse 7, when he says, they have not rejected you, they've rejected me. Do those words kind of sound familiar? Is there another passage of Scripture, maybe in the New Testament, that's very similar to that? Does anybody remember who said it? Something very similar? Not verbatim, but very similar? Jesus to his disciples, right? The Son of God said to his disciples, if they don't listen to you, if they reject you by sharing the gospel, don't be offended, don't take it personally. They have not ultimately, yes, it seems like they've rejected you, but ultimately, who did they reject? Me and the Father who sent me. This is very much a um, foreshadowing in certain ways of, of the gospel, of things to come with, with Jesus but we also see God's character not changing. God is not changing. The Father said this. They haven't rejected you. They have rejected me. Jesus says that to his disciples. And still, even with all of this, God, God could have said, all right, give him a king. That's it. That's what they want. Give him, give him the king. But is that what he says? No. Look what he says in verse 8. Shows all the more his patience. He says, um, like all the deeds... Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So God tells Samuel, go ahead and tell them. You can, get, you can have a king. I'll give you a king. But still give them one last warning. If that doesn't show God's patience, I don't know what does. God, even in that, even in that last resort of saying, you know what, that's what they want, go ahead and give it to them, he still gives them another chance. But he says, you know, if, that, if that's what they choose, give it to them. I'm going to punish them with the experience of giving them what they want. I'm going to give them what they want, and they're going to see in the long run, that that is not the best thing. It's an act of judgment. It's an act of disobedience. God might give people what they want and it not be a blessing. I'll just put it that way. There are a lot of things people ask for and God in his mercy spares them from it. I can't tell you how many prayers I've prayed and just knew 110% it was God's will and looked back and said, thank you, Lord, for not listening to me. Well, he listened, but he probably laughed, but just not getting me what I desired in that, in that moment. It's, it, he's sparing me there from, from myself. But there are times where he does give people what they want, and it's, it's a lesson to, to learn, but it can also be an act of judgment. And I 100% believe that this is an act of judgment on God's part. If that's what they want, that's what they're gonna get. But still, we see... He tells them, warn them. And so I, I won't really dwell much on the warning. We'll, we'll cover it briefly. But Samuel does warn uh, the people of Israel of what's going to happen. 
He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among the horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. So starting off, he says in verses 11 and 12, he's going to take your sons. They're going to be his soldiers. Somebody's got to make the weapons. So there are going to be some people making the weapons, the chariots, uh, being servants. And so in this time, when Samuel's telling him of everything that happens, you know, when a king makes, makes a decree, he has, the, he has the right to tell basically anybody, I want you to do this. And I guess you could say no, but there are some negative consequences to saying no to this king. And so these people have never experienced this because they haven't had a physical king to lead them. They have had a king, but they've ignored him. But they haven't had a king like this that would take their sons, that that would take their daughters, as he says, and use them to serve the king and his delegates, to, to cook meals, to do all of these things, is what he says in verse 13. And then on top of that, verses 14 through 17, he's going to take your cattle, he's going to take your livestock, he's going to take your property, you're going to be heavily taxed. So they're hearing all of these negative things of what's going to happen when a king starts to rule them. None of this... It, had they experienced up to this point, they hadn't experienced any of it, and none of this is good. <laughs> Taking your son, splitting families apart for the king so that he could have servants and delegates and all of these type of benefits just for the king, and it's going to hurt the nation, and he warns them of this just as God told him to. And then, in verse 18, what does it say? Then you will cry out, then you will cry out in the day, in that day, because of your king. I think this is an interesting phrase we also can't overlook. Then you will cry out in, the day, in that day because of your king. First, they cried out for a king. They cried out to Samuel for a king, give us a king. They didn't ask, give him to us. Find somebody to lead us. And now, after all of this, once they get the king, once they get what they want, Samuel says, okay, this is what you want. You're going to have it. And, oh, by the way, you're not just going to have the benefits of having a physical king on the earth, having a monarch. You're going to have a, all, all the negative things that come with it, too. You're going to have everything that comes with it. So in the fir in the first, at first, they were crying out for a king. But then when all of these things happen, it says, in that day, you'll cry out. Why? Because of your king. There's going to come a day where you will realize God was right. Whom you have chosen. You chose him for yourselves, but what? If you've if you're, got your finger in that text, what does it say? But the Lord will not answer you in that day. There are a lot of people that criticize the faith, that criticize God, that criticize Christianity, saying, man, God is... God is wicked, God is hateful, God does not love, all these things. You know, if, if God is so good, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? We all, we, we've all probably heard those, have heard those things, but he says, and they might use this for example, the Lord will not answer you in that day. I always think of examples of how people say well, God was so wicked with Sodom and Gomorrah, just all of those examples. And they always neglect God's patience. They always neglect God's warnings. Just as I said, he, God said, give them a king, but hey, warn them one more time. They never bring that up. 
And we would lose our patience way before God ran out of his patience and his was rightfully so when his ended. But there is going to come a day, he says, you will cry out and the Lord will not answer you because I've, I have just day in and day out beckoned you to return to me. You haven't. And on top of that, you want somebody else. Think for a moment with our finite minds how God felt. Not only do you not listen to my warnings, you don't even want me. I called you to be my people. You don't even want me. You want someone else to rule you. So we see that they will regret it. It's, it's almost as if they're going back to, to Egypt to be slaves. Because like, remember when they, let, they left Egypt? Just It seemed like 10 minutes later, what did they say? I'd rather be back in Egypt. At least you know, we had different meals. We, we knew what we were getting. You know, we, we, it, it was not the greatest, but it's better than what we're getting now. They're going back to that mindset. But before we cast stones at them... We do that a lot too. It, it was a lot easier, easier for them in some instances with their way of thinking, their flawed way of thinking, to trust in a king that they could see than in one they couldn't see. And they were willing to cast aside all the benefits of what Yahweh had given them for a king that they could see that could fight what they believe could fight their battles for them we do the same thing. Why, why, do we, why do we sin after we're saved? Now, of course, I know we're, we still have that sinful nature. I mean, that's the reason. But we have been freed from sin to righteousness. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We have God himself living within us, telling us how to live. We have everything we need and then some in his word. And why is it we still go back? To sin? Why is it we still go back to doubt? Why is it we still go back to the things that, that seem pleasing but are not God? And so, you know, we, we oftentimes criticize Israel, but we do the same exact things by saying, you know what, God, I love you, but I love this more. And we would never verbally say that necessarily, but we say it with our actions. I love you, God. I know you saved me, but I want this. I don't want you. That's what Israel is doing here, and that's what we do oftentimes in our life. As we conclude this passage, they, see the, they will see the error of their ways. He warns them that they will. Verse 19, after he gives them all these warnings, nevertheless, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, no but there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the other nations. They're repeating themselves again. We want to be like everyone else. That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, for anybody that says there's no humor in the Bible, they haven't read it enough or they haven't read it close enough. There is kind of some irony and a little humor in here in this passage. It's sad, don't get me wrong, but it's... It's so sad, it's almost like you're not seeing what God is doing here, the people of Israel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Do they have a king? 
Yes, they have the king over them. That we may also be like all the other nations. They're not like the other nations because Yahweh is their king. That our king may judge us. They've been judged by him already. And go out before us. Has that happened? I think so. Go in other verses before this and see that. And fight our battles. God never delivered them from any battles up until this point, hadn't he? Eesh. Fight our battles. <laughs> it shows the power, as I've said it a couple times already, of short-sightedness when we're sinning. We forget all the benefits of God. We forget all that he does for us when we're sinning, when we're living in sin, when we're having doubt. So why did they not listen? Because after Samuel had heard all these words of the people, he, re, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing, and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So why did they not listen? Well, ultimately, they didn't trust God. They didn't, they, when it came down to it, they didn't trust the Lord. They wanted to be like everyone else. They, they wanted to look like the other nations. They wanted to be able to say, hey, this is our king, and you can see him, visibly see him. But as I said, the Lord was already fighting their battles. Look, look at the sermon series that we have already gone through so far up to this point. Genesis 3, the fall of creation. God still spared Adam and Eve. From there, you have uh, Abraham and his call and God calling him out to be father of many nations. From there, you have, I mean, the list goes on and on. You have Moses and well, even before Moses, you have, you have uh, Joseph who, who is unfairly treated, but God uses him to save his people from famine and they go to Egypt. And then when everybody forgets about Joseph and they're in slavery from Pharaoh, he raises up Moses to deliver on and on and on. They have been delivered, but they forget about that. So what does this text mean for us today? What, what is this, what's the thrust of this text? Well, we see, first of all, that God works good through tragedy, through our sin, because it is through this, through the second king of Israel, through David, his lineage, that the king of kings would be born. And he would step on the scene. And years and years and years down the line, this king would walk with them, and they would actually have a visible, physical king among them, not just a king, the king of kings, God in the flesh, and the irony of it all is that's what they wanted. God finally gave it to them. They didn't see him. They rejected him. So what does it mean for us? Don't do what they did. And, and I'm not trying to sound funny. I, I'm being serious. Don't do what they did. Did We have the whole story. Don't do what they did. The king of kings lived among us, lived on the earth, offered not, not fleshly temporal freedom, offered true eternal freedom by sacrificing himself on the cross, paying your sin debt and my sin debt in full so that we might have life. Don't reject that. Don't reject him. And for us who are saved, the church, Gambrel Street, 
back to what God told Samuel, back to what God, uh, Jesus told his disciples, when we share this wonderful message, it is such a beautiful, the greatest message that could ever be shared. When we share that with people, it's still going to be rejected. Unfortunately, it's going to be rejected far more than it's going to be accepted. But remember what Jesus said to his disciples. Remember what God said to Samuel. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. But even through all of that, did God tell Samuel, stop sharing this, stop loving them, stop, uh, don't warn them again? After Jesus told his disciples, he said, well, once they reject me, give up. No, keep going. He told them, still warn them. Jesus told his disciples, right before he ascended into heaven, make disciples. That's what we are about. And we can't forget that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much that we have your completed word before us. We oftentimes um, complain. We oftentimes are, are stressed with the world and where it is today. And it is, there are a lot of scary things happening. But Lord, what a, what a time to be a Christian in the span of our world history in the sense that we have your completed word. We have everything we need. We have your spirit dwelling within us. We have the completed word from Genesis to Revelation on not just how to live, but the story of redemption. And Lord, as we read this text on Israel wanting a king, it still grieves us to see their unfaithfulness. It still grieves us to look at what all you brought them through and them still rejecting you. But it grieves us because we do the same thing. You have saved us from our sins. You have saved us to righteousness. You have saved us to serve you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and still we love at times to rush back to our sins, knowing that it does not bring fulfillment it only brings slavery, and then yet we feel guilty afterwards and come back to you and you welcome us with open arms. Remind us of that whenever we stray, but also remind us to be faithful. Remind us that you are living within us to live that faithful life, and we will give you all the glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen.